Good morning, everybody. My name is Trace. I'm one of the pastors here. I haven't had a chance to meet you yet. Uh, glad you're here with us. Not sure if that was me or this one. I'll stay over here in my little circle. Well, uh, happy Independence Day for those of you that are Americans uh, in the room. Um, if you're not, happy Fourth of July. <clears throat> you know. Um, I think it's important that we acknowledge certain things in the calendar of the church and in the calendar of, uh, of things that matter to us as, as people who are residents of this country. But um, I think that's where the, the sort of things stop going together, and, and this is not going to be an Independence Day message. Uh, we're going to continue walking through the Gospel of John. Um, certainly there are some themes that we can bring about in terms of freedom. You know, Christy was just praying that we're no longer slaves to sin and righteousness. There's a freedom that exists in Christ, and... You know, that, that is something that we, we celebrate today uh, in terms of our independence and in this nation. Um, but I, I don't want to uh, get too far off track because uh, where we are in John is, is a pivotal point. It's, a, it's an exciting point, and I'm glad that we're here. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me in John chapter 13 is where we are. And as you're turning there... If you need a Bible, there's some Bibles on the back table, by the way. We haven't talked about this much, but that table is it's free resources. Anything you see on that table with the books is yours. If you want to use it, take it. Uh, by all means, that's what it's there for, so take advantage of that. Uh, but there are Bibles there. It will be on the screen also, so just however you want to. Uh, as long as the Word of God is in front of you, let me just say that. That's kind of the goal here in all this. If you have questions... You can text them to that number uh, on the screen. At the end of service, we'll come back up here. We'll sort of answer those questions as best we can, point you to some resources, and it's, just, it's a way that we can involve and include the people that are sitting amongst us. I think it's, it's an important thing, and it's a, usually an encouraging thing. The questions that come in sometimes are difficult and tough, and that's good. We should be asking hard questions, and we should be asking clarifying questions, and so please take advantage of that as, as well. So I want to pause um, I know we just prayed, but prayer is pivotal to everything that we do. It's the centerpiece of what we do. And so let me just pause again and pray for the Lord's help as we enter into the Word of God. So pray with me, please. Gracious and mighty Father, thank you for another day of life. I thank you for the way in which you loved us. Your Word says that while we were still sinners, while you we were your enemies, you died for us. You expressed love in the greatest possible way in laying down your life, Jesus, that we might have forgiveness and freedom and hope and life eternal with you. It blows our minds, Lord. We don't fully fathom it. Lord, as we look to your word this morning, we're going to see other things that you do that just don't make sense to the, to the worldly and common eye. But Lord, give us spiritual eyes to see why this passage is in the Bible. Why did you have John write these 20 verses? What does it mean for us today? And how can we use that to know you more intimately and make you known more boldly? Help us in that, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so if you were with us last week, uh, 
you remember Mike mentioning that Jesus' public ministry has come to an end. So we've spent the first 12 chapters walking through kind of a condensed version of what Jesus was doing on earth, marked by a lot of signs. Uh, how many signs are there in, in God's, John's Gospel? We had seven signs, so we, we saw a lot of that taking place. And it, it helped, I hope anyway, these 12 chapters to really amplify or, or put, on, put on a pedestal the greatness of Christ. Who he is, what he did, and how he lived his life. That's, that's kind of the purpose, and it's all leading up to this next step. And so I think it's important that we reflect on that. You know, we covered a lot in, in the last couple of months through these 12 chapters, and I don't want to just push that aside and go, all right, let's move on. We need to really think back on what Jesus did, the, the miracles that he did, the healings that he did, the way that he loved people, the way that he approached people that others wouldn't even come in contact with. The life of Christ is fascinating. It's, it's incredibly important that we, we look through that. And so it got me thinking... Um, we started watching a show a, a couple of weeks ago, now I guess, um, upon the recommendation of some people. Um, I know that uh, the Rhinishes were one that made a hard sell, like, you got to watch this, you got to watch this. And so we started watching. It's called The Chosen. How many of you are familiar with the, the, called the, Sh the Chosen, this series? Okay. It's fantastic. You're right. Should have taken your word for it. Uh, uh, man. Content aside, I mean, it's, it's great content. Obviously, it's, it's the life of Jesus and his apostles. It's fantastic. But the way that it's done is unlike any other attempt, I think, of bringing these things to life. And, and I think it will change the way that you look at the Bible. It's that powerful. It's that transformative. It's that important, I think, of a work. Um, and so I can't recommend it enough, the, the way in which... That's all right, Luke. Nobody's watching. <laughs> it changes the way you see the scripture because it brings a certain element of humanity to, to, to life and personality and these kinds of things. Culture that we just don't understand and we don't know. We see it all coming to, together on the screen. It's, it's fascinating. And so, man, I can't recommend it enough. But it's also... Incredibly appropriate for what we're studying right now. We're walking through the life of Jesus, and then we can see it coming to life. And, and so, yeah, just watch it. The reason I say all that is because it, it, it has helped me to kind of look and see and reflect on what we've been studying, what we've been talking about in following Jesus, particularly the cost associated with following Jesus. I think we skip over that sometimes. You know, for the original 12... They gave up everything that they valued and everything that was important to them to follow somebody that they knew very little about. At that point in Jesus' ministry, there wasn't much to go, oh, I want to go follow that guy. I want to give up everything that I value to go after this guy. <laughs> there, I think that's one of the most tangible demonstrations of faith that we find in the New Testament. That Jesus would say, follow me. Really, just those two words... And they would literally drop everything and go. And it would cost them. Most of them, it will cost them their lives. This is significant, my friends. But as believers today, I hate to inform you if you haven't been told this, but the same is true for us. It will cost us. 
to follow Jesus if we do it the way that he intended it to be. Now, we have the benefit of the entire Bible at our fingertips. We know the story, and yet we still struggle to follow Jesus, don't we? If we're being honest with ourselves. I mean, not necessarily the initial act of repenting and believing, although that's a journey for a lot of us, but just the day-to-day following after Jesus. We can struggle in that. Can you put up Matthew... um, Mike talked about this last week. Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And we spent a lot of time last week talking about what it looks like to deny ourselves and and how so many things in this life are competing for our attention and we need to just kind of give a stiff arm to some of that stuff sometimes. But... My friends, we're we're followers of Jesus. We're disciples of Jesus. And there's no greater privilege than to walk that out and live it out. And so as we turn our attention now to John chapter 13, I'll just help to, to keep this in front of you. What is your primary focus? What is your primary mission in this life that we have been given? Just keep that sort of at the forefront. We're called to love God and love others, right? We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Living out that Shema lifestyle. How do we love God? We love God through our what? Through our obedience, right? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. How do we love others? It's through service and meeting needs. Physical needs, spiritual needs. It's kind of just boiling it down as practically as we can get it. So, what does all that have to do with John chapter 13? Um, it's a good question. I'm glad you asked. I'm going to read the text this morning, and then hopefully give a little bit of context and some application so that we can take this and do something with it. So John chapter 13, it'll be on the screen, but I'm just going to read it from the ESV is what it says. Now, before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper... When the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments, he resumed his place. He said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I've chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I sent receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Okay. So this is the beginning of what's known as the farewell discourse. Anybody ever heard of that term before? Farewell discourse. I'm seeing more heads nodding than I thought. Okay. All right, smarty pants. How many chapters does the farewell discourse make up? What, 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 what are we talking about here? Starts in 13. Where does it go through? Anybody? The end? <laughs> Essentially, it would be chapters 13 through 17. It's five chapters, right? 13, 14, 15, 16, yeah. Five chapters of this farewell discourse. And it's actually, it's not unique to John's gospel. This is a literary tool that's actually been used in other parts of the Bible. Think about other pieces of the scriptures that we know. Think about the farewell and blessing of Jacob to his sons. There's that example. Um, what else we got? David's farewell speech in First Chronicles. We've got um, Joshua's farewell speech to Israel. That is in Joshua 22 and 24, if you want to look at that. So but basically the pattern is this great man, this hero of faith, gathers his people, his disciples, his children. He gathers them together on the night before he dies in order to instruct them for what happens when he departs. That pattern exists in the scripture, and this is what we see happening here. But another aspect that I think is, is, is unique maybe um, here is something called ancient consolation. So when you're hurting and you're mourning, you want people to console you, right? What does that mean? Like To kind of just make you feel comfortable, encourage you, love on you, that kind of thing. So this literature, it uses three different types of consolation, if you will. Um, and, and, and even though we haven't read the farewell discourse yet, we're just at the introduction to it, I think if we, we think critically, we think back on our previous readings through John, if you've read it before, I think we can pull out the example. So here, here's the first one. The first is that a surrogate or a replacement is offered. So this replacement becomes the means by which that departed person remains present among them. So let's collectively think. Anyone think, who is it that Jesus is going to leave behind as his quote-unquote replacement? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, right? If you don't believe me, you can read on through the discourse and you'll see, I must depart so that another may come. It is the Holy Spirit. Good job. Okay. The second one is prediction. So the idea here is that if a death is predicted, it will be less of a sting as if it were, you know, sudden. You know, when you lose somebody suddenly, it, it, it's, it hits you differently. And so, believe it or not, in chapters 15 and 16, if you didn't know it already, Jesus is going to predict his death. He's going to tell them, this is coming. So then when it happens, hopefully it's less of a shock to them. The last one is a, a call to stay the course. So how many of you can relate to the fact when, that, when you're 
experiencing tremendous loss, you're in deep mourning, it's difficult to continue on this mission that you've been given. It's, you're just kind of consumed by, by grief and what's happening. And so he's going to work extra hard to communicate to his followers, hey, look, I know this is tough, but you've got to push through in order to bear fruit. Anybody know what chapter we're going to talk about bearing fruit? Chapter 15, John chapter 15. It even says, I am the true vine. We're talking about bearing fruit. So we have all three of these techniques employed by Jesus, this consolation. So I want you to just keep an eye out for them as we're going through these next couple of chapters so you can see, okay, this is what Jesus is doing. It's not just arbitrary. He has a purpose in doing everything. So having said all that, let's just talk about this introduction to this farewell discourse by Jesus. So we have the famous foot washing scene, right? How many of you are familiar with the foot washing scene of Jesus and the disciples? Sure. So let me just lay out a few things for context so we're all sort of on the same page moving forward. What feast is being celebrated right here? Passover, right? Passover is happening at this moment. Um, Look down at verse 1. According to verse 1, what is significant about this particular moment in Jesus' life? What did he know? He knew that his time had come. His hour had come. Up until this point, what has it been? My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. He kept saying that, kept saying that, kept saying that. Well, guess what? His hour has now come. And having lived among his creation us, and loving them entirely is time for his departure. Okay, so what else is significant about this meal on this particular evening? What's that? He would be betrayed. He knew Jesus would be betrayed. What is this known as in the other Gospels? The Last Supper. Right? Even though it's not completely clear here, and some scholars would, would kind of argue what night of the week this actually happened, but most agree this is the Last Supper account. This is the night before he would go to the cross, right? So that's important that we understand that. We have Judas Iscariot, as we already said, Simon's son, who was going to be betrayer, his betrayer. What we read was, the devil had already put in his heart to, depra- to betray Jesus. Now, how many of you are a little bit creeped out by that idea of the devil putting an idea in somebody's heart? Anybody a little bit creeped out by that at all or just kind of like, what's happening here? Well, you're going to keep being creeped out because I'm not going to talk about that at all. <clears throat> because it's not remotely anything to do with the, the point of the passage. So you go talk to Mike. He'll, uh, he'll go deep in that with you, I'm sure. Yeah, he'll tell you all about it. But look at verse 3. Put up verse 3 again, if you would. It's one of the next slides down there. There we go. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God. That statement is what prompts Jesus' next action. And that's some pretty heavy stuff right there. It's, it's, It's coming to a head. Everything... The purpose for him being here is coming to a close. Knowing that he had come from God, and now it's time to go back to God, what is he going to do? Well, naturally, of course, he's going to wash people's feet, 
That's what you do, right, when your time has come. Makes perfect sense. No, of course not. It doesn't make any sense at all. But that's what he does. He gets up from the table, takes off his outer garments, his coat, whatever you want to call it, wraps another towel around him, pours water in a basin, begins to wash his disciples' feet. So I don't want to go into a lot of detail about historically what's happening here, but many of you probably know this role of washing people's feet was generally reserved for like the lowest of the low servants. I mean, you're already a servant, so you're down here. Now you're at the bottom of the rung because you're washing people's feet. Culturally, it's as low as you can get. I think there's significant in that. It's not something that you would just do casually to a friend or a neighbor. So there's significance in that. We need to understand that. So this action by Jesus is actually modeling for us a very clear example of humility and service to others. Now, some of you have been around in church a long time. You've probably heard a message preached on this multiple times. And how many of you heard that the point of this passage is that we should be humble servants of other people, lowly servants? Anybody? Like that's kind of generally speaking, like this is this is the point of the passage. And I would I would agree in large part that's that is a, a reason for the passage here. Mark 10:45 tells us that. Would you put up that link? Mark 10:45. It's way down. Yeah, there you go. For even the Son of Man... No, go back to the other one, the first one, 1045B. It's all in order, Lee. You just got to click from one to the next. Ten forty five B. Or A, sorry, thank you. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to what? Serve. Serve. Okay, that's pretty clear. And so we need to take from this example... Humble service. Makes sense, right? But not only that, though, that we need to look for opportunities to humbly serve others. It's not just enough to know, okay, Jesus did that, so I ought to do that too. Let's be on the lookout. And I I dare say, pray for those opportunities to humbly serve other people. But why would you do this? Why would you do things that others might see as perhaps demeaning or lowly, why would you do such a thing? Let's look at 2 Corinthians 4, 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for whose sake? For Jesus' sake. The reason we do these kinds of things is for the sake of Jesus, for his name, for his reputation. In fact, if we keep reading, we're going to see something else in the next verse, chapter, er, verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Giving light, shedding light on the glory of God. Or at least the knowledge of the glory of God. That's fascinating that we would do these things to just put a spotlight on who Jesus is, who his character is, and who he's called us to be. And when we act in these ways, my friends, when we do these kinds of acts of humble service, the glory of the Lord shines the brightest because they see the love of Christ through us. You see the pattern being established here? We've got to be on the lookout for these opportunities. That's what that Shema lifestyle that we've been talking about is all about. That's why it's so important. 
meeting the physical and spiritual needs of other people is a critical part to obeying the Great Commission. And a lot of people don't see that. They don't see how that's a part of living out the Great Commission. Why is it so important? I said this a couple of weeks ago, and I'm going to continue to say it because I, I don't even know who I heard it from, but it's, it makes the most sense to me. This kind of action, Shema lifestyle, loving God, loving others, humbly serving them, it opens the door for spiritual conversations that lead to spiritual transformation. Like if I could sum up where God is leading us in all of this, this kind of lifestyle of humbly serving other people, meeting needs, praying for the sick, praying for your neighbors, bringing food over and telling them why you're doing it, those things open the door for spiritual conversations that lead to spiritual transformation. That's the pattern Jesus gives us, and it's a good pattern, and we need to follow in his footsteps. And so this act of washing feet, it's a really a beautiful picture of humble service to others. It truly is. But there's a lot more going on here. If we just stop there, it would be great. But I think we're missing a bigger piece of what's happening here. And it's not until we get to good old Peter's response here that we begin to see, okay, there's something else going on here. What actually is, is happening here. So what is Peter's response when he comes to Peter? He's washing people's this. He's washing the disciples' feet. He just Peter sitting there washing them. Mm-hmm. This is where washing the chosen is really kind of makes all this come alive because everybody has a personality, and you can just see Peter kind of shaking his head, going, "Don't, don't stop here, Lord. Spoilers. Don't, don't you do it." There's no spoilers. It's fine. <laughs> he says, "Jesus, are you going to wash my feet?" That's that's his response in all this. Are you going to wash my feet? Um, really, Peter? So here's what you're going to do. You're going to question the creator of the universe. You're going to tell him what he can or can't do. right? That, that's what Peter's kind of known for, right? He just, just, starts, just starts talking. doesn't really think much of, about it. It's a bold move. right? It's a bold move, Peter. Um, we'll see how that plays out for you. But out of, out of this exchange, it's for our sake. It's for our benefit that we begin to see the bigger picture of what's actually happening here. So these verses, verses 7 through 10, this exchange between Jesus and Peter, it tells the story for us. So we, we have his initial objection. You're going to wash my feet? Jesus graciously responds, what I'm doing, Peter, you don't understand it right now, but what? Later, you will understand it. Okay, so he's kind of helping Peter walk through this. Like, just just go with me, Peter. Trust me in this. So we get Peter's second response. And I'll give you the TSV, which is the the Trace Standard Version. (laughs) Jesus, I will never let you touch my feet, ever. Like, just get away. Stay back. Like, you can just see Peter. Like, no, don't touch my feet. This is not going to happen. That's when we see... Jesus sort of tipping his hand, showing us a little bit more of the story. Verse 8. If I do not wash you, you have no share of me. That's what he tells Peter when Peter says, don't touch my feet. No, 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 Peter. If I don't wash you, you have no part in me. And we're going to hit that in a second, but I want to get Peter's response to that. Not just my feet, Lord. My hands, my head, wash everything. you got to love Peter, right? He's either all in 
or he's all out. There's no in-between with this guy. And I'm kind of encouraged by that because I think it's a better place to be than lukewarm. At least you know where you stand. But what about that reply in verse 8? If I do not wash you, you have no share of me. He's no longer talking about washing feet. The subject has changed. This is a very different kind of washing that Jesus is referring to. So, how many of you sang hymns growing up in church? A couple of you. Okay, I want you to finish this line from this old hymn. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Wow, I was impressed. That was good. Thank you for that. The cleansing that Jesus is talking about here is of sin. What can wash away my sin? And what did you sing? Nothing but the nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is an imagery of the cross. This foot washing thing and what Jesus says is unless I wash you, you have no part in me. And here's where we pick up the rest of Mark 10:45 because initially I read for even the son of man came not to serve but to be served and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, Peter himself is going to comment on this later. Do we have 1 Peter? Did I put that up there, Lee? 1 Peter 17? I can't remember if I did or not. It will be the next slide if it's there. It's not. Okay, let me just flip to it real quick. So remember, Peter is the one that is at the center of this whole thing. And in 1 Peter 1, 17 through 19, he says... And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We're cleansed from sin and unrighteousness by the blood of Jesus and nothing else. What's unique about the blood of Jesus? Right? We've had centuries of sacrifices, goats, lambs, sheep, doves, all these things, blood is being poured out. What is unique about Jesus' blood? It's spotless. It's sinless. It's perfect. That's what makes his blood suitable for our forgiveness. And we must be washed clean by that blood in order to be brought into a relationship with him. That's the whole purpose in all this. So in verse 10 now, Jesus gives us even more. Right? The one who has bathed does not need to wash. In other words, once you've been cleansed by the blood, you've repented, you've believed, you've been made whole. You don't need to get washed again, right? The old has passed away, the new has come. Except your feet. It says you don't need to be washed again, except maybe your feet. And maybe a 21st version of, of that would be, 21st century version would be, except for your hands. Right? Our hands come in contact with the world, right? We get dirty, we get mixed up in things, and they need, let's say, a quick wash. You don't go, you know, home after being, a, I don't know, I'm just trying to think of an example. 
I do. I go home after I work and I take a whole shower. But let's just say you're out in the store, you come home, your hands are dirty, you don't jump in the bath, at least, hopefully you don't, just to clean your hands, right? It doesn't make any sense. Another way of saying this would be, once you're cleansed by the blood of Jesus, you are forgiven. You don't need an ongoing full cleansing. But, what happens? Sin entangles our feet. We get caught up in the sin of this world. We fall short of the glory of God. And so we need a daily washing. What are some things that we can use as a daily cleansing and washing for us? This is the primary thing that's going to wash you. A daily washing of the word to remind us of the truth of the gospel. That's why Bible intake, reading the word of God, is so critical. Sometimes we call that rehearsing the gospel to ourselves. You may be familiar with that terminology? Rehearse the gospel to yourself. Tell yourself, remind yourself about who you are in Christ. Or the idea of repenting and believing. We enter into a relationship with Jesus by repenting and believing initially. But then we continue to repent and believe daily. It's a kind of ongoing thing. That's what Jesus is saying here. Yes, be washed, cleansed of all unrighteousness. But then as you go about your business, that daily cleansing and washing of the hands and the feet, the parts that get exposed to the world. That's what he's getting at. But he says... Not all of you are clean. Who is he referring to in verse 11? Who's not clean among them? Judas, right? We know that from the rest of the text. Not all of you are mine, he says. Not all of you are cleansed. So, he's done washing the feet. Takes a towel, sits back down, and he addresses them one last time. Verses 12 through 17. What we have here is a call to action. Jesus is going to tell them what this means. What, what does this look like? He's telling his disciples, and I would argue by extension, he's telling us, do this. Do these things. I have given you an example. And he's not just talking about washing feet. Again, it's the humble service. It's the daily washing of our feet and our hands. Verse 17, if you know these things, if you know these things, blessed are you if what? If you what? If you do it. Blessed are you if you do it. You know it. It's a good thing that you know it. Now go and do it. That's what he's talking about here. Obedience-based discipleship. Hear and obey. I hope that sounds familiar. Being doers of the word, action-oriented discipleship. That's what we've been talking about for the last several months. And I think it's a beautiful picture here of what's happening. So the section closes. <clears throat> Jesus is speaking of a scripture that's being fulfilled, and he quotes, what does he quote? Anybody know? Down there at the bottom of the, of the section, John 13, um, where is it? 
John 13, 18. What is that a quote from? Anybody got any footnotes? Psalm 41, 9. How did you find that? You got a footnote? Anybody else got a footnote? See, right after that, I have a, a little letter A, and then I went down to the bottom of the page, and it says Psalm 41, 9. So those little numbers and letters in the verses, if you have that kind of thing, it, it's it's helpful and it's important. So let's look at Psalm 41, 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Again, we're still talking about Judas here. We understand that. <clears throat> but in verse 19, Jesus reveals to them why and wh- and why he said what he said and the timing of it all. He says, I'm telling you this now so that when it happens, you'll what? Oh, believe. You'll believe that I am he. There's that word again, right? That's the whole message of John. That's the title of our series is just believe. I'm telling you this now in advance so that when it happens, you're just going to believe that much more that he really is who he said he was. And then we have this final verse. Getting ready to wrap things up. The final verse of this section is a beautiful picture of the mission that we've been given as a church. Let me just read from this big ginormous book right here that I struggled and suffered to bring because it's so heavy. For all of our benefit. Thank you, Audrey. I could have written it down. I guess it's like a couple of words. So I think this really paints a picture of what Jesus is talking about here. Let me read that again, that verse real quick. Verse 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So who is Jesus sending? Right? In terms of going out among the lost, who is Jesus sending? He's sending us, right? So I say to you, whoever receives the one that I send... So whoever receives who we are encountering receives me. Let me read this. It may help. Just as Jesus is representative of the Father, so also are the disciples representative of Jesus. This is the mission of God, and therefore also the mission of the church. And this explains why Jesus is the example, the model, and pattern for ministry. The servant who both serves and sends his servants. The effect of this pronouncement is to place all the preceding verses into the framework of the disciples' mission in the world. Just as Jesus is the agent of God, so also are the disciples agents of Jesus. If you didn't hear anything else, hear that last part. Just as Jesus is an agent of God, so also are the disciples agents of Jesus. We know that. We've been talking about that as well. We're, we're ambassadors. We're called to be a reflection of the light to the world around us. We're able to do what we've been called to do because of Jesus and through his work on the cross. And so once we're cleansed of all unrighteousness through our repenting and our believing, we become his representatives on this earth. Nothing earth-shattering there. But how do we do that? I think one of the ways is following Jesus' example here. 
and serving others and, and meeting needs and communicating why we're doing what we're doing. Jesus redeemed you and saved you and rescued you from a life of misery and an eternity of, of punishment and separation from him. It's the best news that you could ever get, right? Yeah. Then we share that with others. It's through our obedience to God and our service of others that we carry out the Great Commission and we bear fruit as Jesus tells us to do. <clears throat> but as I said in the beginning, my friends, it comes at a cost. Following Jesus, it comes at a cost. It's not easy. Just like the twelve, when they were just content, happy, doing their own thing, Jesus called them to follow them. It cost them a lot. Everything. We're no different. And many people, hear me now, many professing Christians don't want to hear anything about this. Just leave me where I am. I'm good. I repented. I believed. I'm just waiting for Jesus to call me home. I'm sorry to say, but you're sadly mistaken if you think that's the end. It's not. It's not at all. You can't read the New Testament and logically come to any different conclusion other than a life of sacrifice and difficulty in following Jesus. Suffering for his sake. Doing difficult and uncomfortable things for his sake. All that we do, my friends, is for our good and for his glory. So we got to wake up every morning and make a decision. Am I going to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow him? That is a daily decision. It really is. I'm not talking about salvation. I'm not talking about your relationship. I'm talking about your living it out in real time, today, right now. That is a daily decision. Will you, will you follow Jesus today? Not in a casual way, not in a cursory way, but in a washing other people's feet, praying for the lost, meeting people's needs kind of way. And I pray that as we grow in our faith, each one of us, as we continue to be raised up in our faith and in our standing of what Jesus truly wants for us, that the answer to that question, more often than not, will be yes and amen. Yes, I will take up my cross daily. Yes, I will follow you. Yes, I will deny myself for your sake. Because can I tell you, it's absolutely worth it. Absolutely worth it. So before I close in prayer, I just want to offer one more space to see if anybody has testimony, a word about how the Lord used you this week through your obedience to him and loving others. And I'm going to I'm going to frame it in a way that I think might help us think critically about this. So hear and obey the Shema. Hear the word of God and do it. That is a life marked by obedience to God and service to others. I'm trying to make this as simple and concise as we can get it. Hear and obey. A life marked by obedience to God and service to others. So here's two questions. <clears throat> How have you taken steps 
in leading this kind of lifestyle, and what testimony of God's grace do you have as a result? Through your obedience and loving God, of taking steps in that direction, how have you seen God work in that? And then, what work of the ministry has the Lord brought you to this week? Remember two weeks ago when we were talking about the vision for the church, we said that the work of the ministry is yours. You pray for the sick. You go out among the lost. You are in your neighborhood. You are the spiritual influencers in your communities. Our job is to equip you for that work. So, as you're thinking on that, perhaps next week will be a better opportunity because I set it up a little bit more structured. But I, I did want to leave space because I said that I was going to do that. Has anybody seen anything through their obedience and through their trying to live out this kind of lifestyle, a testimony they'd like to just briefly share. And that's okay. Oh, yep, yeah. I love that. That's great. Yeah. It could look like any number of things. That's a beautiful example. Um, so maybe this week as we're prayerfully looking for those opportunities and we're, we're bragging on God, that's what we're doing. That's what this is about. It's about giving him glory, putting him in the spotlight. Yes, we play a role in that because we are called to be obedient and step out of our comfort zone for the sake of the glory of God, bringing light to the knowledge of of who God is. And so I'm going to continue to leave space for that and continue to pray that you would just walk that out and see what God does with it. Okay? All right, let's pray. Lord, you are awesome. <laughs> you are faithful, God, even when we are not. You're holy, righteous. Thank you for the example that you gave us in John 13 this morning of humble service of others. We know that's a hallmark of your ministry. You went after the marginalized, the lowly, the people that nobody else wanted to deal with. That was your target. That's what you aimed for. Now show us ways in which we can be more sensitive to the people around us who others couldn't care less about, that we might express to them the love of Christ in some tangible way, even if it's just a smile, a, a God bless you, whatever it is, Lord, for each of us, God, I know that this journey is marked by small steps, small steps of faith, small steps of obedience. And so that's my prayer this morning, God, that each one of us would just continue down that path. We're not looking for radical overnight change, Lord, unless you would do that. God, that'd be great. 
But Lord, we, we know that in, in general, you work, Father God, in these small steps. You give us just a piece of the puzzle and we, we go. And then you give us more. And we go and you give us more. So just help us to get up every day. Seriously consider Matthew 24, 16. That we would take up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow you. Be willing to go and do whatever it is you've called us to. Knowing that in all of it, God, Jesus Christ will be glorified. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the testimony this, this morning of a faithful believer stepping out, trusting in you in new and exciting ways. God bless us, keep us, and help us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.